The following sermon is from Lifeway Church of Billings. Continuing our study of 1 Corinthians with a sermon entitled Marriage and Desire is Pastor Stacy Gaylord. All right, good morning. And uh, let me t- turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and so we I'm going to be talking this morning and starting this morning uh, on a subject that can be sometimes difficult uh, to get right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is uh, historically kind of a challenging passage, and so if you wonder how do we arrive at topics like this, here's the, the real truth to the matter. So we're going to be talking about marriage and sexual desire next week, um, the issue of divorce and beyond that what does it mean to be single and married and how should we think about it and uh, I'm so brave that what I do is I pick a book in the Bible uh, and just go through it and then whatever comes up that's what we talk about because if I just picked what I wanted to pick there are topics that I would avoid kind of like this morning so we're going we're gonna to be chatting about this. Just in God's design, we open uh, God's Word. We happen to be here at 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, we're going to jump in and see what God has to say, knowing that God is good and He means us good, that He's wise and He's perfect, and that we need to hear that so that we can benefit from it. So thinking about the topic today and, and what Paul jumps into is marriage and desire, or marriage and sexual desire, it got me to thinking... You know, when does all this start? And, uh, you know, when I was growing up in, uh, in Oklahoma, the little town that I lived in in, in grade school is Hominy. Not, this was pre-Fairfax for those who are uh, piecing together my biography. Um, and I had a friend, and he was a little guy named Kyle W., I'll say that since the world is digital these days, Kyle W., and he was this great guy. Uh, you know, one of the best kids in school. And so in grade school, you know, we all played on the playground, but there's something phenomenal that happens when you're in grade school. You're running around, and it's cool to play with the guys. Ding. But then you notice the not guys, right? You notice the girls. And Kyle was one of those guys who had an emotional bravery unlike you know, your average human being. And so he picked up, I think it was from a Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny fell in love with another bunny. I may be getting this wrong. Uh, But he referred to her as his dream boat, right? And so he didn't pronounce the R, it was dream boat. And so Kyle W. had a crush on a girl, and I think it was like in third grade, fourth grade, and he would call out across the playground, dream boat, you're my dream boat. Um, they ended up getting married. No, that's not. They got. It turns out she did not like him, and uh, this broke his heart. And I told him, you know, it's like, did it work? Nope, nope. She hates me now. I'm like, well, you know, I got to thinking about it. Kyle W. had a big heart, and the world needs more people like him. But the point is, is that we're wired for connection with the opposite sex right away. You're born with it, you notice it. That's the way it goes. That's, that's a design, that's a creative design, okay? 
So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 9, and it might not seem like that at first. And then by the time you get to verse 2, we're going to jump in and you'll see. So he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should have his wife or give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we just pray that uh, as we look at your word, that we'll grow from it, that we'll see what we need to see. This is a topic about which we're always getting it wrong. We live in a, a really confusing time and place. Our natures make it to where we're confused. Draw us back to your word, your truth, your wisdom, your heart for us to see what you have in mind and to agree with you. We also pray that out of that we would flourish. I pray in particular that in whatever season or station someone in this room is in, that you would encourage them that you're the God of hope. To that end, we ask that you bless in Jesus' name. Amen. So, all right, let me start by making a couple of introductory points here. And I want to say the obvious one just because it seems to constantly need to be said Uh, in our culture, but also because biblically it's so fundamental you can't understand anything else without it. So a couple of introductory points. Number one, the Bible operates under the assumption that sexual desire is normal and good. There's sexual desire. The assumption in the Bible is that it's normal and good. When that gets tested, it holds up that the truth is, is that sexual desire is the way you were wired. It's a normal thing. Everybody experiences it, and it's a good thing. Paul is not concerned here about being sexual. He's concerned about being sexually immoral, and there's a huge difference. We need to, by the way, as an aside, we need to teach our kids that difference, that being sexual is not bad, being sexually immoral is. Now, think about this. So if you just... You got a big, I have a big old book. I have a big old book because I don't read as, my eyes don't see as well as they used to. So the Bible, right? You don't get out of chapters one and two, the first two chapters of this book without this issue being addressed. Before the fall, the fall happens in Genesis uh, three and in Genesis one and two, This complementary relationship, even a physical relationship between a man and a woman gets addressed as part of the equation. So the Bible operates under the assumption that sexual desire, that's part of the design. That's the plan. So it's normal and good. God wired you for it. It's part of creation. Okay? Number two, the context for Paul's teaching here is really important. Think about two roads that intersect. 
all right? And we're at a certain intersection here. So one of those roads that, that, that is the context for Paul's teaching is misunderstandings about sex. That's, that's misunderstandings about sex avenue. We see that in verse 1, where he basically, he quotes, do you see how he starts it? He says, concerning the matters about which you wrote. In other words, the Corinthian church wrote him about some issues. This is one of them. And almost all commentators agree that that next line is, is, is the question or the assertion. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's a misunderstanding about sex. That's part of it. The other part of the context is that there is serious pressure on these Christians in their day and age. So if you look at verse 29, we'll take this up you know, in a later uh, sermon, God willing. But he says, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. Paul believes that they're in a situation that they need to think about the brevity of life and the imminence of the Lord's return. Not only that, if you look at verse 26, he talks about, um, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In other words, if you're single, to remain single. If you're married, to remain uh, married. But why? There's a certain amount of pressure that he refers to as the present distress. Distress. We'll cover that in a later sermon. But in other words, that whenever you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul isn't writing a manual on Christianity, sex, and marriage in a vacuum. They've got their background with all their misunderstandings. There's certain pressure in their social context, and he's addressing their concerns uh, in real time. Okay, So this is really important because it's easy in our context to look back Read that misunderstanding, bless you, read that misunderstanding in verse 1 and go, well, that's dumb. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's dumb. And, uh, but they, we need to realize they came up in a culture of sexual confusion and sin. We'll talk about that a little bit more. We should be somewhat humble because we could easily write a book on our own sexual misunderstandings and miscues. Uh, the, the, the current talk about when life begins, for example, is, is actually just moral double talk, right? It's evil moral double talk. That, that's, that's worse than a blind spot and worse than a miscue. We've got our own, and so we should be somewhat humble and compassionate, sympathetic with them. But consider the real possibility that in their context, this is what's going on. We don't know for sure, but this is a real possibility. What if, because of moral dualism, in other words, to look at the universe and say, if it's spiritual or of the spirit, it's good and pure and eternal. But if it's physical, it's worse than temporary, it's corrupt. And out of that, a moral philosophy arose. And so that people applied in different ways. They basically said, one, maybe whatever you do with your body, it's physical and temporary and all that, just doesn't matter. And somebody else might say, oh, your body, because it's physical and temporary, it's corrupt. Whatever you do with your body is bad. Whatever appetite you have is bad. Now, we know from a Christian worldview, we go back to the beginning and God created a material physical world and said what it's good they didn't have the benefit of that this is the this is the first time christianity is happening in full revelation right and so whenever they think about the physical nature of the world and sex and the body and that sort of thing it's very possible that out of their dualism one side would say something like this 
well, you know what? The body doesn't matter. I think I'll just go visit a temple prostitute. No big deal. And somebody on the other side says, well, that's awful. Maybe sex is bad and we shouldn't do it at all. Now, who's right? You know, that's kind of like ding, 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 ding. We'll take what's behind door number three, Bob. You know, neither side is right on that equation as they respond to each other. So those are the two points, okay, introduction that will frame what's to follow as we open up the passage. Now, what I want to do this morning, though, is draw three principles from the passage on marriage and sex and sexual desire, and we'll just pull them right out of it. Okay, three principles so that we can see the world better, which is exactly what Paul is trying to do for them. So that as we look at this, you and I navigate this stuff all the time. So the world you live in, this passage is a great passage for you to get clarity from God's world, uh, from God's word. Okay, so three principles uh, that we'll draw. Number one, good sex is undermined by bad views. Good sex, which is what God designed, by the way, is undermined by bad views. Go back to verse number one. What does he say? Okay, I'm going to talk about what you wrote. You had a question. You had a concern, and I'm going to answer that. Bad ideas flaw the application of the good design that God had for sex. Okay, if you've, in other words, a messed up perspective, a messed up worldview is going to corrupt the way it ought to operate. There are lots and lots of bad views out there on sex. All, it, all you got to do is listen to music, watch a commercial, watch a, watch a movie, whatever, read a book. It's all over. Have human interactions, right? So some of those bad views are like this, bad ideas. Somebody says sex is bad. Somebody else says the best sex is outside of marriage. In other words, it's rule-breaking sex. Somebody says, sex is only appetite, it isn't sacred, it isn't serious or relational. The, the real answer is not to know all the bad views, the real answer is to know the real design, the real purpose. Why is it that your body is made different than somebody of the opposite sex? Why is it that people flourish in the context of uh, devotion and family and safety? Right? We're going to find that from God's word, and the real answer is to go back and look at that. But I get this, and I'll say it in a kind of a simplified form, but I get this all the time where somebody will object and say, look, quote-unquote, doing it wrong doesn't mess up sex. You know, you're, you're saying this wrong. And the answer to that is, if it doesn't mess it up in the moment, it'll mess it up in the long term, and when it doesn't seem to mess up the sex, it'll mess up other important things. And all you got to do is have your finger on the pulse of the world around you. And you can see it in your best friend's lives. You can see it in your co-workers' lives, okay? So let's get to verse 1. What's he answering in his context? Right? This is the question. Think probably it's coming up out of their dualism. And it's the assertion, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, the phrase is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The implication being sexually. Pause. Based on what? Why do they say that? Why, why is that the, uh, the theory? Is that actually what God intended? Is it based on Genesis 1 and 2? Is it a design flaw? 
No. So think about the literal phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, euphemism for sexual interaction. Look, God designed you. That's why your bodies are different and complementary for touch. Uh, God said, these are God's words, it is not good for man to be alone. Adam evidently agreed because he said, at last, you know, flesh of my flesh, right? And then there's the statement, the divine statement about this, the two will become one. That's going to require some touching. God gives a command, be fruitful. There's some touching going on there. For this reason, a man will leave his mom and his dad. There's a big draw. It's so big that a man leaves what had been his primary family unit and says, I'm going to go be with her. And I'm going to create a new primary family unit with her. There's a lot of touching going on uh, in that scenario. So whatever they base it on, it's not the biblical framework. It's not God's creative design. This touching is God's idea. So whatever it's based on, it's based on something else. So you get the problems with this. When you look at their question like, boy, this seems, not, this seems to not be good, very suspicious of sex, you trace it back and you see confusion about what sex really is and probably a bad history with sex given their background, and it undermines the good. So to say it bluntly, God designed physical, passionate sex, and he designed it for good and for pleasure. And we need clarity on what God intended. So we, we can hush everything, or we can help our kids understand it. I've been doing this long, long enough. I know now that adults need to understand this principle. People in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and so on need to understand what we draw out of this. Okay? Good sex is undermined by bad views. Have a good view. Okay? A biblical view. All right. Principle number two. So unless you're going like, whew, okay, I'm glad the sex talk is over. Wait till verses two through five. Okay? So the, the second principle that we draw is that the design for desire is God has a design for that. Physical sexual desire is normal. You were wired for it. What's the design for it? Where is that to be met? It's to be met in an encouraging marriage. That's the context for it. Let's look at verses 2 through 5, and then we'll cover verse 5 first and work our way kind of back. So just for review here, he says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you have this desire, your design for it. Where is that to be met? It's to be met in an encouraging marriage, uh, uh, a marriage of mutuality. Let's start with the exception, though, in verse 5. He says, now, there may be an exception to this general rule. And um, it's like a little season of prayer. Realize when he talks about that, he's speaking of that as though that is the exception. It's like a fast, right? It's not normal. Uh, it's limited. It's brief. And it's not the point. If you ever go on a fast, the not eating part is not the point. Or if, if it is the point, you're doing it wrong. Okay? Um, the, the point is to open up a season for something else. 
Okay, so he points out this as an exception. He says, as a general rule, I've got this concern. And what's the concern? Do you see it in the passage? I'm concerned that there are going to be married couples or people in a marriage who are going to be tempted to sexual immorality. Here's this desire for sex, and it's not meant to be met outside of marriage. It's meant to be met inside of marriage, but a sexless marriage encourages that. And because of that, consider how you take care of one another, right? So the Bible sees marriage as the context to meet desire. You got a concern? Paul's got a concern, but it's not sex as bad. It's sexual immorality. Okay, so look at the phrases he uses, and we're just, we'll walk through these pretty briefly. All in the context of marriage where two people are concerned for each other. This actually sounds like a really good relationship. Ought to be something that, excuse me, we all aspire to. Notice in verse 2, how does he describe it there? A, a man ought to have his own wife, and a woman ought to have her own husband. And in verse 3, you should give to them their rights, their conjugal rights, meaning they have, they have a right um, to your body and vice versa. Uh, verse 4, you talk about something that culturally is way out of step. We should read verse 4 again. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Yikes. And then uh, beyond, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Culturally speaking, what the Bible says is that the culture we live in is way out of step with the truth. Because we live in a culture where a woman says, I have exclusive rights to my own body and doesn't give any regard to a man. And so we don't think that it's actually both ways, that uh, authority over body or actually just um, taking care of each other inside of a marriage is something that we're to think about. And so you don't get married to exert your rights. You get married to meet somebody else's. Okay? And so the way he describes it, we can go on. Look at verse 5. At the beginning, he says, don't deprive one another. Don't deprive one another. And he says, like, basically, if there is an exception and you have a season of prayer, then what's his answer to that? Come together again. All of these see marriage as the context to meet desire. Okay, so let me do a little aside. Do you want a good marriage? If you're married, do you want a good marriage? And most people say, yeah, but I mean, some people aren't so sure. You want a good marriage? Let me tell you an open secret. I mean, but you got to want it. If you want a good marriage to happen to you, sorry. You want a good marriage? Here's the open secret. Be good to each other. I mean, if you want the other person to be good to you all the time, then that's the kind of the recipe for you to be a brat, maybe. But if you want a good marriage, you have to be good to each other. Okay? It's open because it's obvious. The best relationships are the one where people are good to each other. It's a secret because so few people get it, probably because they're too selfish. The open secret is to take care of each other and you'll have a good marriage. I'll, I'll tell you something else. Your marriage doesn't have to look like mine and my marriage doesn't have to look like yours. What you really need is for the two people in the marriage to actually get a lot out of it. 
If you take care of each other, it doesn't matter so much what everybody else's looks like. You know, the basic question, who does what chores and who takes care of the books and, you know, what kind of food do we eat and how often do we have sex and where, how do we raise our kids and different things like that? I don't know. Work it out. You know, I mean, I, can, I've, I've, I have been a, a coach and a consultant in those cases and I can help, but really you guys are your own standard. You just have to be good to each other and take care of each other in it. If you're good to each other, you will reap what you sow. If you fail to be good to each other, you will reap what you sow. Most marriages that hit a certain point, what happens is season after season, a lot of distrust and a lot of animosity and disdain has been sown, and then they have a really hard time getting past it because that's taken root and it's borne fruit. The opposite is true. Where people are good to each other, there's a lot of trust and goodwill. And you need a lot of goodwill in a marriage for it to flourish, okay? Let me ask you one more hard question out of this passage. Because the, the design for desire that we're wired for is an encouraging marriage. Are you a depriver? Okay? Now, let me, let me do a little caveat. Don't be a manipulator. Don't look at a passage like this and be a bully. Don't look at a passage like this and be demanding um, and that sort of thing. You should know that sex is designed for people, and you married a person, not an inferior. Okay, you met a person with real emotions, real needs, and that sort of thing. And you need to see your spouse that way, okay? That is an appropriate caveat. We should set it aside because that is not what this passage is about. What this passage is about, let me get back to the question. Are you a depriver? Look at the beginning of verse 5. Do not deprive one another. Right? That's the way everything he says before doesn't happen. Spousal deprivation. Statistically, this makes your marriage much more vulnerable. Okay? I'm not saying that your spouse isn't responsible for what he or she does because your spouse is completely responsible for what he or she does. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if you are a depriver, you are too. Okay, help them. Notice here's the, here's the line of thought. What does Paul say? What does God say in his word? Because, verse 2, because of the temp- temptation to sexual immorality, a person should have his own spouse. They should give their rights to each other. They should be giving, right? Um, I should recognize and she should recognize that it isn't just what I want. It's what the other person wants and so on. Help them because of temptation. You can see that in verse 5 again. Do not deprive one another. Why? Come together again so that you won't be tempted. Help them because of temptation, and if you're a depriver, you've, that, this is an area of repentance because you have a big role. You have a God-given responsibility in this area, okay? So desire is normal and good. Design for that desire is to be met in an encouraging marriage as part of a, as part of a flourishing life. And then we're going to transition, and it, it would say, here's the third principle to the third principle. I would say this is easier, but it's not. In verses 6 through 9, Paul talks about, he raises an issue that he's going to develop more later. So let's read 6 through 9 again and, and let's unpack this for our third, uh, 
principle. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, what's he saying there? He expands on that in verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Here's the third principle. Celibate singleness has advantages if it is possible for you. Okay, what is, what is Paul saying? Let me point out a few things. First of all, we need to realize he's, this is not a rule. He says in verse 6, it's not a command. It's a wish in verse 7. And then in verse 8, he points out that the celibate single has an advantage. He says, look, if you're in this single uh, status, I, I think it's better or it's good if you're single as I am, right? And he expands on this later in chapter 7. This doesn't have anything to do with the supposed badness of sex. But the third point to make here is that you need God's grace for it. This is a gift, he says. Marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. And you're going to need God's, and it's from God, and you're going to need God's grace for it. But if you see the flow of verses 8 and 9, he says, look, it's good to remain as I am, but if you cannot, you should marry because it's better to marry than be aflame with passion. Now, what do we do with this? Let me point out a couple of things. Um, because Paul expands on this, like I said, a lot more starting in verse 25, and we'll, we'll develop it then. But he raises this issue right now and he says, hey, by the way, before we get too far, celibate singleness does have its advantages. One, we need to see this teaching is more relevant today than it's ever been for us. Okay? We actually need to read passages like this and say, there have been seasons in the church not that long ago that we looked at this and maybe we did it with some fog. That fog is lifting. Our demographics are changing. There's cultural movement so that people, the, the kids we're raising and their friends and so on, marriage is happening later and later and sometimes not at all. We have people who um, have gone through divorce. I mean, we've got all kinds of streams coming into our church family, just like other churches do, right? And there's not this monolithic culture that's feeding the same kind of people into into that stream, into this pool that we call the church. There are more believers who are single longer. Um, you're not wrong. If you're an adult, you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever, and you're single, just based on that, there's nothing wrong with you. And this church needs to support you. Now, I would say this. There's another side of that coin. If you're an adult single, um, you need to think it through, through too. Make sure that you don't think, oh, I'm different. Whether it's this church or whatever church family, come into the fellowship more deeply. Right? Build, build friendships. There's, there's nothing that prevents you from doing that. But we do, as a church, because of this cultural shift, we have a lot to think through over the next few years about it. But be faithful to Jesus now. Hold your head up. Keep your head high and be faithful to Jesus now. That's the season that you're called in and the Lord is good to you. There's nothing wrong, okay? And so it's this passages like this are super relevant to us because we've got a lot of believers, a lot of people we love that would say, this is the season of my life that I'm in and I need, 
I need help to think it through. Here's number two. Um, we should see that our diversity needs to be met with patience and care. So what do I mean by that? Because we have uh, a lot more uh, mix now. We have people who are married. They've been married for a lifetime. You have people who are divorced. We have people who are divorced and remarried. People who are single and never been married. And all as adults, right? We should regard that with some patience and care. And so I'm going to speak to a portion of the crowd this morning. The I didn't get anything out of this sermon crowd. You ever met this person? Like in the mirror? Um, A bad part of our church culture is to say, hey, how'd the sermon go? Well, I was bad. It didn't apply to me. I didn't get anything out of it. Well, look, if it's biblical, you could have, but maybe you're just too self-centered to get anything out of it. Right? Like sometimes people grumble like this. Let's just take this topic. Well, you know, I mean, it's about marriage and I'm single. It's about being single and I'm married. It's about kids and I don't have any or mine are grown and gone. Thank God they're grown and gone. Um, It's about divorce and that doesn't apply to me. It's about marriage and I've been divorced. And so people will grumble along those lines and they'll go, it didn't apply to me. So how do you get something out of God's word when it quote unquote doesn't apply to you? Well, you pray and you prepare. So you pray for others in the church to whom it does apply, and I want to say genius, right? Because you're responsible, like, like a locker room. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I should have just thought it. But um, we're responsible for each other. And God's word needs to be preached across the spectrum to the church family. So what if we preach about pain and aging? and you're 20, and you're sure that you're going to live forever, what should you do? Pray for somebody who's older. What if you're married and we're speaking to singles? Pray for somebody who's going through the joys and the difficulties and the opportunities of that season in life. What if you're single and we're, we're talking about somebody who's married? Pray for other people. Look around and take responsibility biblically for the other people in the room. And they need God's grace. So if it doesn't apply to you, God does a really good job of making sure his word applies to somebody. Take responsibility for them. Okay? You also prepare. The sermon that doesn't apply to you today, it might next year. Or someone to whom you're really close. Don't pout. Prepare yourself for upcoming seasons. If you don't have kids, one day maybe you will. If you're in a single status, maybe one of these days you'll be married. If you're married, one of these days you're probably going to go back into a single status. Statistically, it's highly unlikely that you get married and you die at the same time. I mean, when you made your vows to get married, one of the sacred things you said was what? Till death do us part. Until we cross that line and one of us is single again. Just hear God's word with some humility and grace and love for the people around you. It does apply. If not to you, maybe to the person next to you. And they really, really need God's help in the season they're in.
Okay, so those three. Let's review. Like I, like I said, in the great context, sex, desire, and marriage, it's good by God's design. So these are the three principles. Good sex is undermined by bad views. What do you do here? You agree. You agree with what God says. You have a biblical view of what sex and marriage and family is. Number two, the design for uh, desire or sexual desire is to be met in an encouraging marriage. So if you're married, encourage your spouse. Don't be a depriver, be a giver. And principle number three is celibate singleness has advantages if it's possible for you. Now, you may be there because you want to be. You may be there through no choice of your own. You may be there because you messed it all up. Listen, come to God for grace and help, and he's great for it. Hold your head up and follow Jesus. Okay? Do it like the biggest thing that defines you as a Savior who laid down his life for you. So this is often difficult, but do the difficult. Let me close by saying this. History is filled with those who sold their birthright for the moment. Remember that God gives a better reward. Let's pray. God, what a great reminder, what sometimes is difficult to be reminded of, but we pray for your grace and your goodness. As we see each other, we see people, people who struggle, people who uh, recognize the solidarity of sin that we're, we've all fallen in uh, our own sin, but also see the solidarity that we have with each other in your call to give us grace, to give us hope in the gospel. Help us to be a great support to one another. We pray for the marriages of the people in this room and ask that you bless them. We pray for those who are single, that you help them to be sexually pure and good and have an eye for the future and to, to really live faithfully for Jesus now. And uh, we trust you with our future, married or single, because our great hope is the return of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The preceding has been a teaching of Lifeway Church of Billings. 